Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm very excited to introduce Andrew Berkshire, who is SDPN's Program Director of Game Over, host of Game Over Montreal. Um, everyone should check out him and, and all the Game Over crew uh, at SDPN. And, and thanks so much for taking the time and coming on, Andrew. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad we figured this out. It seems like we've been uh, yeah. playing catch for a while now in the DMs there, Alex. Yeah, no, no, that's uh, both of us had to to postpone this. So I'm, I'm glad we uh, finally uh, figured it out. And um, I want to first ask you a little bit about your career, Andrew. And when did you first think you might want to pursue a career in, in, in sports journalism? I mean, I think I kind of fell into it, right? So I started out basically uh, commenting on a website that it kind of still exists, but not in the same function. Uh, the, the Montreal Gazette had a website called Habs Inside Out back in the day. Mm. And it was like owned by the paper, but it was separate from the paper. It was its own website, its own comments. It was run by a few sports reporters at the uh, paper. And I started commenting on that. And <clears throat> I just started to grow like not happy with coverage that I was reading around the team. Yeah. And this is at the same time I was in university and I was like not very happy with how things were going there either. I, I was in political science, kind of oh, cool. losing my passion for it, losing like seeing the end of the tunnel and not many great jobs, <laughs> you know, yeah. lining up. So I just started writing on like an independent blog. And then uh, the person who founded uh, Habs Eyes and the Prize, who had joined SB Nation, came to me and was like, hey, do you want to write for this site? Be a bigger audience. And I was like, Sure. And I wrote there a few times. My first column there got featured on NHL.com, wow. which was pretty cool. Uh, and then through writing for SB Nation and the exposure that that got, I got exposed more to the analytical side of hockey. Uh, it was like the beginning of the the advanced stats or metrics, whatever you want to call it, movement, that, that data movement and trying to understand the game. And I've always been a very science oriented person and wanting to learn more than, you know, I know at the time. So, and also obsessed with being right about things. So <laughs> it seemed very necessary to me to dive in head first and become part of that stats community. So I did that. And I think it was only about a year after I started writing for Eyes and the Prize that uh, Robert Lefebvre had retired. Uh, Kevin Van Steendelar was the managing editor at the time. The site was kind of stagnant and I was doing a lot of work. So I reached out to uh, the head of SDPN's hockey, or not SDPN, sorry, SB Nation's hockey department, Travis Hughes. And I was like, hey, I think I deserve to get paid for the amount of work mm -hmm. that I'm putting in. And he agreed. And within a couple months, I was actually managing editor at, of that site. Mm -hmm. And we took that website from about 80 to 82,000 page views a month over just under three years. I started in, uh, it was like November, like maybe December of 2012 during the lockout, that half season yep. lockout from there until I think my last month was June 2015. And uh, we went from 82,000 page views a month to 1.5 million. Wow. So we, we grew exponentially. I brought in like an amazing team and that website still now is now independent of SB Nation and continually successful after SB Nation shuttered their hockey department. 
and uh, the people in charge there are like still killing it. So that's like a huge point of pride for me that I didn't I didn't create it, but I built it to the point where people wanted to be there and smart people wanted to be there. And now it's like a self-sustaining organism. What what do you think made it so successful? Like, what did you change or, or what do you think people gravitated to um, Eyes on the Prize, right? Um, and, and, and that website? Well, I think there were a few factors. Uh, the first was, it was like very shortly after I took over, we were becoming so successful that uh, we had the budget. I mean, I say the budget. There was not a lot of money being handed out to us, but uh, SB Nation allowed me to take on a co-managing editor. So I brought in uh, Mark Dumont at the same mm, time. Yeah. So Mark and I were just like obsessed. Uh, we were all in on this thing. We wanted to build it into this mega movement, mega website. And we spent like I was working probably 14 hours a day, seven wow. days a week, almost the entire time. I had one week where I went to Hawaii in 2014, and that's it. You know, making very little money making personal sacrifices. Thankfully, my wife had a full-time job to support us at the time because I wasn't pulling in any, anything. So <laughs> it it helped in, in that way, right? Being able to dedicate yourself that extensively to coverage was good. But also we approach things differently than media at the time. Things have changed a lot in media over the last 10 to 15 years, but we were the only website in that covered the Montreal Canadiens that used that data, that used a high level analysis to look at players, right? So where you would go to the Montreal Gazette or RDS or TVA, what have you, La Press, and there be there could be great columns written by great writers, but their analysis was a lot of the team said this, so it's this, or this person who's involved in hockey told me this, so it's this. There was very little actual analysis going on so our approach was like here's all the information based on this information these are the things that we think based on such and such and such and such and then we started to you know use that information to make predictions right like we were the first website to say like hey pk suban is not just a good young rookie he is an absolute star in the making we were the first ones to post that so we got huge amounts and also we didn't refrain from trolling so uh the Boston Bruins Montreal Canadiens rivalry was a huge for us. Uh, one of our biggest things ever that we did was I don't know if you can remember or if you saw this at all, but back in I believe 2014, okay, Milan Lucic came up from he had like three different incidents in, in the league in the regular season where he came up from behind someone and stick them in the groin. So we took that mac like we made a macro of Lucic uh sticking in the groin and then we had like uh like a shooting gallery yeah. we had like the piece of the paper with the body on it and it would like rip up the middle of it and it would go on to the next one he would like keep on it was like Lucic practicing and we just made that into a gif and put it on the yeah. website and that just like people clicked on that so many times we had the Bruins wheel of excuses all sorts of stuff that we put together to to piss off Bruins fans and to make Habs fans laugh. So we incorporated humor. We incorporated analysis. We brought diverse voices uh, out of the woodwork to try to bring different perspectives that maybe we wouldn't have thought of. We weren't afraid to put young people in charge either, letting them write their own content. We would edit them and guide them, of course. But if they have something to say, 
where they wouldn't get another outlet. Now they have an outlet. And, you know, one of the first people that we actually hired was Arik Parnas, who works for the Colorado Avalanche now wow. as the head of their analytics department and has his name on the Stanley Cup. So, like, wow. the, the people that we attracted ended up being incredibly successful people. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about the analytics part and, and what did you do at that website? And even maybe now in terms of how do you bring analytics into an engaging story line or, or story storytelling in, in pieces that you work on or as a podcaster as well? It's a lot easier in print than it is on video. Uh, <laughs> on video, I think in order to do it successfully, you need to have animated graphics that are pre-prepared. So like when I do my post game show, I don't talk a ton about analytics. I will reference some things uh, about like the specific game or like trends that players are on, but more than anything, I use it casually to base my opinions on and like build a segment, but not necessarily talking about analytics. So like if I see that a player is shooting like 2% from an area where they usually shoot 12% from and everybody's dogging on them for, you know, uh, not scoring, but they're getting tons of shots from that area. And I can go then and look at the tape and say like, listen, he's been more unlucky than anything. Let's have a conversation on like the difference between a player actually struggling versus a player who's just on an unlucky streak or a player who's on a lucky streak. So I can bring it in that way, but in a visual medium, I think you need the actual graphics to talk about like the, the numbers themselves. And if you're just going to rattle off numbers, people are going to tune out really quickly. Whereas I think the uh, deep dives that we were able to do in print, it's more engaging because you can go back to charts and reference things. You're not, uh, stuck where if you don't understand something you have to like go backwards and rewind right you can read at your own pace understand at your own pace and uh, if you're not patient enough to read that then that's that's fine it might not be for you i i, I want to ask a little bit what has it been like for you covering the habs for i guess now almost a decade like did you grow up a habs fan are you do you feel like you're impartial uh, what's it been like covering that team yeah, I grew up a Canadians fan. Uh, I got my first jersey when I was like eight or nine years old, I think. So I was always obsessed with Patrick Waugh, uh, hmm. Mario Lemieux as well. My favorite fact growing up was always that Mario Lemieux and Patrick Waugh were born on the same day. Really? The exact same day in 1965. Hmm. So... That was always like my favorite thing. It was like two guys, 33 and 66, right? It, it, like everything, it meshes too well together. It's so weird. But uh, I, I was always obsessed with the Canadians. Um, when Patrick Wall was traded in 1995, I switched allegiances to the Avalanche until he retired. And uh, then Saku Koivu with his battle against cancer kind of like brought me back in. Um, I, I would say that uh, I'm more a Canadians fan now than I was a few years ago, just because when you spend time following the ups and downs of a team every single day, it's hard to not have any sort of rooting interest. And that's where I come from whenever I have a big problem with people in media who say that they're just not fans. Okay. Right. I think that there is, there's different layers of fandom. There's the people who can't see anything outside of their own team's perspective. And there's the people who have a rooting interest 
but it's not going to like at the end of the day, if their team loses, they're not going to throw a temper tantrum and have trouble sleeping that night. That's where I'm at, right? Where I I'm now back to the point where I would like the Montreal Canadiens to do well. I would cheer very hard if they did do well. And I think it fits into the vehicle that I'm driving right now as well in SDPN, where it is more fan driven coverage than trying to be objective. But I can also take a step back and say like, look, this team way better or like this team deserved to win versus the Montreal Canadiens. This non-call that people are freaking out about, not a big deal. Sometimes I'll go in on stuff, but I try my best to have some level of objectivity, but I also admit at the forefront that like what we're doing here is from a Montreal Canadiens perspective. So it's never going to be a hundred percent objective. And I think there is no such thing realistically in media at large there's no such thing as objectivity but in sports media especially there's no objectivity even if you don't think that you are like in love with the team that you're covering you still have a rooting interest in like you'd like them to make the playoffs because it's a more interesting story nobody wants to watch a full year of Dominique Ducharme like there's a reason why media call for a coach to get fired it's not because they think the coach doesn't deserve that job it's because they want to cover something more interesting. They want the team to be successful. They want to talk about something that isn't so depressing. And that in and of itself is another form of fandom. So I, I kind of like my back gets up a little bit when people say that they aren't fans, especially people who are very clearly fans. Is is it more like it's a, it's a bad uh, quote to, to say, but it's not your you're not necessarily balanced, but you're fair, if that makes any sense. Is that kind of if that makes any sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense uh, as much as Fox News is neither yeah. of those things. <laughs> I just It just the, came uh, to my mind about like the media trying to be objective, but also, yeah. as you mentioned, in with SDPN, it, it's much, uh, that's not what your goal is necessarily to be balanced. And, and, and if they're playing the Flyers, you're not talking about Travis Konechny for 30 minutes, right? Um, that's right right unless they do something spectacular we will never we're never stopping ourselves from from doing that if something crazy happens right but like what i always say to Mm -hmm. opposing fans is like you're always welcome on a stream but number one behave yourself and number two recognize that it's not actually about you so (laughs) you're, you're coming into a not necessarily a hostile territory but somebody else's territory and that is where the focus is and i think one thing I learned from doing game over the first season where I was much less of a fan, like I I was just more willing to stand back of it was that the fan base does have a thirst for their perspective to be heard. Right. And in this strive for objectivity in media, oftentimes fans feel like they aren't represented in media. So what we're doing at SDPN is kind of filling a void that, fans want you know there's a reason why like Habs fan tv on twitter and instagram and tiktok is wildly popular right now because it's the voices of the fans there's a reason why steve dangle is like yeah honestly he might be the biggest sports media personality in canada like that's how big he is at this point there's a reason why it's because he is like the the beating heart of the toronto maple Leafs fan base and that is something people want to see I want to ask you a little bit about your experience. What has it been like at SDPN with Game Over Montreal and also now like the head of the whole uh, enterprise, uh, let's call it that? 
It's awesome. Uh, I, I didn't know when I started what we're doing that I would care as much as I do. Like game over was my idea. Uh, Jesse Blake came up with the name, but my idea was like, we're, especially in Canada, we're missing post-game shows. Uh, yeah. Sportsnet and TSN just flip straight to clip shows afterwards for highlights. There's nothing on, on TV really after hours on Hockey Night in Canada, but that's not really a post-game no. show. It's just an interview. Uh, radio does it, but it doesn't do it very well. Most of them are call-in shows, and it's just, you know, your angry uncle yelling about the goalie, oh, yeah, we get going that down his knees yeah. too early. So I wanted to create something that, number one, was smart. Uh, I hope that anybody who watches an episode of Game Over Montreal or any of the Game Overs uh, leaves the show either thinking something they wouldn't have thought before or thinking about something they would have thought wouldn't have thought before or that they know something they didn't know before. They learn something. That's like the number one. And the number two is it's the content that they actually want to enjoy. Right. It's not catering to the worst <laughs> of, of the worst. Yeah. And we're, we're filling a niche. We're filling a, a demand. And now that I'm a like a team leader as well, a manager, which is something I did at Eyes on the Prize, but at a much lower level because that was all volunteer work below me at the time. Mm. Where we weren't paying people because SB Nation didn't pay people back then. So now I have actual employees under me and we've gone through this hiring process over the last year and a bit to expand to different markets. And the people that we found are just, astonishingly good uh watching them interact we have like a group chat of all of the game over hosts together and we have each team has their own uh separate chat so they can just discuss things mm -hmm. about their own team or about upcoming broadcast things like that and all of them are so unbelievably collaborative so supportive of each other so smart giving each other ideas it's truly the easy well i don't want to say the easiest but it's the best job that i've ever had and probably mm. the most fun job that i can imagine having at this point in time and, and you've talked you just mentioned how collaborative they are what do you think makes game over such a successful um show and, and what are some of the things that you think are key to making it successful i i think the number one key is you have to build a relationship with the fans right like one thing that we have that really like radio has to an extent with callers, but like TV doesn't have at all is that every time I do a show, I have a stream chat beside me or like on this on the screen beside my face and I can look to it and I can talk to people and it might be a couple minutes delayed in between interactions, but I can say, oh, look, this person has a great point. I had planned maybe this for the show, but this person gave me a topic that's far more interesting than what I had written down. Let's talk about that. So the viewers are now part of the show, especially well, on live anyway. People who watch yeah. on video on demand or uh, listen to the podcast less so, but they yeah. can make it to shows, right? They can send in questions via Twitter. So that is super special, I find. But also, like once you build that relationship, the people are already passionate about their team, but they become passionate about the hosts as well. They start to have like uh for our hosts that are uh like big teams like toronto where there's four people there are some people who like one host more than another that mm -hmm. like not trying to denigrate any but like uh everyone will have their favorites right so they'll get excited about someone being on the show we'll have different guests that are on the show that people get excited about and i i think it's that dynamic that helps and the fact that this doesn't really exist in any real form 
anywhere else. I know that uh, other people have tried to copy it already. Yeah. Less than a year into it, people were trying to copy it. But we're the first, at least in Canada, to try something like this. And I, I think it's just super fun that people can interact and change the course of the stream based on their own intuition or their own uh, insights that they come up with. I, I think that's the, the coolest part of it all. But I, I think the people that we have involved are, are so talented and, and smart and engaging that uh, that's like the biggest draw of all is the, the people that we have involved in it. And to, to other young journalists coming up or sports journalists specifically coming up in the industry, what advice would you give to them? Oh man, this is like one of the, the toughest questions because it, yeah. it changes. Right. And I think that, uh, you know, there's all, always, you see hmm. older people say like, listen, just work hard and, and you'll get there. It's just not true anymore. Uh, and I hate to be depressing, but legacy media for the most part is dying. You know, uh, radio has been stripped to the bone now where one person is doing at least four people's jobs in every radio station on every uh, show across Canada, probably across North America, newspapers, you know, like the Montreal Canadians, the Montreal Gazette is the biggest English language newspaper in Quebec. It has one Habs reporter. Stu Callen, who used to be the sports editor, but had to step down in order to fill in the spot for the Habs reporter. They usually have someone else there as backup. Pat Hickey has been there for forever. But again, Pat Hickey is like in his late 70s. They should have made a change there and had younger people coming up earlier. Like Stu Callen, I like Stu Callen, great guy, but I'm pretty sure late 50s, you know, like he, he's an older guy. They don't really have any avenues to break in there. There's bit parts that I that I do for the Gazette. I, I'm on their HIO show. Um, I've done writing for them in the past, but now they don't have they don't even have the budget for that. TV is almost impossible to break into unless you're number one in Toronto and number two have a lot of connections, or you're a former NHL player. That's one way to get into it. So it's it's a very tough field to get into. I would say my biggest piece of advice for people who are honestly trying to get into sports media is make sure that you are prepared mentally and physically to sacrifice to work for a long time for very little money before you get noticed and make sure that you're writing in your own voice. Don't go into it trying to be someone like Steve Dangle, because if you have to try to be Steve Dangle, then you're not Steve Dangle. And the only reason Steve works is because he's not fake. If someone who acts like that is fake, it's very easy to tell and nobody will like them. Like the internet is a very harsh place at the best of times. And uh, if you're fake, it'll be outed really quickly. So find what your niche is, whether it's writing, analysis, opinion, humor, what have you, video work, podcast work, dig into that, be prepared to, not be noticed for a long time try to make connections with people in the industry younger older whatever reach out to them try to be nice uh interact build that network right but Mm -hmm. even then there are people who are legitimately good at their jobs and they work a couple of years and they end up doing something else because the money is crap the the stability of employment is terrible it's, it's a really, really tough industry to get into. So you better be unbelievably passionate 
I would suggest having a partner that can financially support you. And yeah, uh, yeah. yeah you got to be prepared to roll in the gutter for a long time. For me, it was almost three years before I got a real paying gig, which was like basically pure luck that I was doing a TV interview and the person who was being interviewed before me happened to work for a, a startup and they asked if they could come along to my interview to introduce themselves and they did. And six months later they hired me hmm. uh, as their, their main like contractor essentially to, to write up about uh, advanced metrics and, and microstats and all that stuff as well as as a consultant. So a, a lot of it is really, really depressing and it, it sucks to say that, but I don't want to, set people up for failure or, or not tell them the truth. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of know all the information as bad as it might be so that you go in without blinders on because yeah. the people who tell everyone that things are going to be like hunky dory and, and all easy, like uh, it's a big thing in like parenting circles where people be like, Oh yeah, you know, you have them and you think it's tough, but it's just, they're so amazing. Blah, blah, blah. It, it doesn't feel bad at all. Like, no, parenting is extremely hard uh kids are great yes they're also terrible it <laughs> sucks up all your time it changes your life completely so if like what i tell people who are thinking about being parents all the time is if you are not a hundred percent committed to being a parent just don't have kids not maybe it's just not yet maybe you're not ready for it but yeah. if you have to think about like oh maybe i just don't want to sacrifice my me time don't do it because you'll be bitter so it's the same thing with getting into sports media. If you are willing to be miserable and unhealthy, work way too hard for very little money because you're that passionate, go for it. But if you're not, look elsewhere. Uh, I think you put that very well, and I, I tend to agree. Um, in my case, thankfully, uh, I have another avenue, so I'm, I'm not dead set to this. And uh, I do have a partner that... Uh, will be making a lot of money uh, very shortly as a nurse. So I'm, I'm very lucky that way. Um, I want to go to the Habs quickly. Um, and I just want to ask you, what did you make of their year? Obviously, they weren't supposed to be a playoff team, but and they came fifth last. Um, but what did you make of the Habs season? And was it a successful year in terms of being part of their rebuild? I think it was. I think the development in terms of their young players was really good. I think... Uh, more than anyone, uh, Nick Suzuki impressed me this year, being able to put up the same numbers as last year, slightly better, despite, you know, again, everyone getting injured, losing Cole Caulfield for half the year, uh, lack of support from the rest of the lineup, uh, the constant rotating door of line mates. That was really impressive. His first year as captain as well. I think that uh, the young defense proved that they were, uh, good enough to play in the NHL, maybe not uh, the the high end level that you want for like a team that's actually good, right? They didn't have that, but they they managed to hold the fort while Mike Matheson was injured. That was really huge. Uh, I think every young player took a step forward in terms of development this year, which is kind of what you want to see on a rebuilding team. Pretty disappointing season for Uri Slavkovsky, but I think that was also to be expected. I think that the Canadians maybe made a mistake there in keeping him in the NHL and let, instead of letting him go down to the American Hockey League and play uh, a little bit of a more dominant game with more minutes 
But then again, you know, maybe he gets injured earlier. You don't know. The injuries really did derail the season. That was the biggest problem. But uh, overall, I think it was a pretty successful season from them. They have a good pick in this upcoming draft. Another one from Florida in the first round. So that helps as well. Obviously, everyone wanted Connor Bedard. But if they leave with someone like Matvey Mitchkov, I don't think people are going to be that upset overall. It's still questionable what they're going to do with that pick, but they're in a good position. That's that's what I would say. And the the development from their young players might be the most encouraging thing of all. You look at Lane Hudson in the NCAA, absolutely dominant season. Sean Farrell did the same before joining the big club, club at the end of the year there. Joshua Waugh, one of the best players in the QMJHL. Riley Kidney changed his game completely from being a perimeter player to a guy who drives the middle and went from maybe one day a possible like third line NHLer to looking like he could knock on the door of the NHL very quickly. So those kinds of developments are all very good. And I think that if the Canadians continue to beef up their, their front office and their coaching staffs, I think they need to hire someone else like Adam Nicholas to be the skills coach for Laval. If they can do that, they're on a very, very fast track, even without getting the Connor Bedard or Adam Fantilli pick. I, I want to ask you quickly about the fifth overall pick. You, you mentioned that you don't really know what like what direction they'll go in. What do you think they'll do? And would I know on Habs Twitter, it seems a lot of people want Mitch Cover. That's a interesting selection. Would it make sense for them to pick him if he's going to stay in Russia for a couple of years? Yeah, I think it actually works out better, right? Because it allows them to not rush the rebuild. Um, if they were picking Connor Bedard, I mean, nobody's going to be upset with that, no, right? No. But there's pressure on the team to then try to make the playoffs right away, right? You're you're moving from a slow rebuild that maybe takes three or four years to one that's two years in and trying to get into more competitive territory and probably does so relatively easily if you have you know, Suzuki, Doc, and Bedard down the middle. Like, that's that's pretty darn good, even in the NHL. So, Mitchkov allows them to, not necessarily tank. I don't, I think they're past tanking now. I would say this year, they were bottom five. Next year, they're probably around bottom 10. But it, it allows them to have that more gradual build and stock up more draft picks, allow guys like uh, Lane Hudson to stay in the uh, the college hockey for a little bit longer. There was talk towards the end of the season of maybe him going pro uh, after this year. I don't think that's, that was ever going to happen, but he's a guy who, because of his physical situation where he's much slighter staying in the uh, NCAA for not just one more year, but two more years, maybe makes a lot more sense. So if Mitch makes it over to the NHL around the same time as guys like Lane Hudson are breaking in, then you build this situation where all these young players are kind of coming up around the same time. And that's what you kind of see with the dynasty teams that come out of uh, the NHL nowadays. It's a lot of players around the same age making up that core that is almost immovable, right? Tampa Bay with uh, Palat, Kucherov, Point all coming up around the same time, along with a uh, Hedman's a little bit older, but those guys you had Chicago with like the Kane and the Taves and the Seabrooks and the Keiths, all those guys at the same time and LA at the same time with Kobitar Brown, uh, their core as well. So those teams that win multiple championships usually have a group that comes up together. And I think 
the way Mitch Goff's contract is structured in Russia, if the Canadians were to pick him, it would slot very seamlessly into what they're building. What do you think? <clears throat> you just mentioned the the all the young players kind of coming up at the same time, but there's a lot of rumors. I'm a quasi I'm a Jets fan as well as a Sens fan, and Pierre Luc Dubois has basically been winking uh, winking at the Habs all for a couple, for about a year now. Is that a good idea for the Habs to trade some assets and maybe expedite that their their rebuild in, in acquiring Pierre Luc Dubois? I, I think with that it comes down to what's what's the asset look like to to move to Winnipeg because Winnipeg doesn't have a lot of leverage in this situation, right? And there's been talk about the Canadians offering Dubois like a low level offer sheet around four point one million dollars, and then he would sign it just to get out. But Winnipeg, if they don't match it, the compensation is only a second round pick. Well, the Canadians don't have their second round pick needed to do that. So if they acquire that back from Arizona, it was given up in the Christian Dvorak trade. That might be a sign that they're trying to put pressure on Winnipeg. I would assume that if it gets done, the Canadians end up giving a little bit more than that because it would be like a, a sweetener for Winnipeg to make it feel like they're not, you know, stealing. Uh, offer sheets are always hurt feelings in the NHL, which is ridiculous, but that's the way this league is, is made. Uh, trying too hard to win is seen as a bad thing, I guess. But uh, I would assume that that would be something that's on the table if they want to bring him in this year. But the Canadians can just wait until he's an unrestricted free agent. He's a restricted free agent right now, one year until unrestricted free agency. They don't need to push the needle unless they're worried that he's going to decide he wants to go somewhere else. If he feels like he needs to be wanted, I would be for trading up to like... If Florida beats Toronto the and that pick becomes the 29th overall this year, not the worst idea to send that over to the Jets for Pierre-Luc Dubois. But outside of that, I don't think they're getting much. Like I, I saw a bunch of Jets reporters floating the idea of Kirby Doc for Dubois. That's never going to happen. Uh, just based on leverage and market value, it that was never, never going to be on the table. It doesn't make any sense. Doc is a controlled asset who just had a breakout year. And Pierre-Luc Dubois is a guy who has now asked for a trade from his second straight team. So it, it, it's a tough one. But Dubois is a good player. The only thing with him is, like we just said, second straight team where he's asked for a trade. He wants to go to the Montreal Canadiens. Maybe that's like where he will be his best self. But maybe in a couple of years, he asks for a trade again. He seems to be a little fickle. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, as a Jets fan, uh, we we've uh, just had that experience all year, and it, it's definitely not fun. So, um, yep. I I want to ask a little bit about the job of Marty St. Louis, and and he, I think most of Habs fans enjoy him as coach or think he's good. But do you think he's the right coach to lead this team going forward when they are maybe competitive in two three years from now? I do, I do. I think that one of the things that's been interesting about St. Louis is he's talked about. Uh, integrating things at a very slow pace, which works really well with a rebuild, maybe not so well with a competitive team if you were jumping into it right away. But when he first took over, he talked about the concepts that he has for building a winning hockey team and you know, letting guys be free to make reads. But one thing that he has said repeatedly is that it's really difficult to teach what he's trying to teach and also teach to win at the same time. 
So you need to get the fundamentals of what he's trying to do first and then incorporate that into a winning strategy. So I think we haven't seen the winning strategy yet. There's a lot of uh, freewheeling with the Montreal Canadiens, especially on defense, I find some stuff that I, I wouldn't do. Uh, a lot of chasing, a lot of out-of-position play, but you see some of the brilliance in fits and spurts on a team that doesn't have a lot of talent. You have guys like Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield, who guys who have that hockey sense, they just thrive uh, under St. Louis. We, we saw it this year with Doc. Uh, it, it's crazy to see how well players recover themselves under St. Louis and how patient he is to give players opportunities. So that's been really fun. But I think overall, we haven't seen, it's like, I don't want to pull out too many references to different types of media, but it's almost like Dragon Ball Z and we haven't yet seen his final form. And when we do see that, I think it's going to be because he's coached the core of that team for a few years and instilled those concepts over time. And uh, they're ready to compete, be a lot better. And that's going to be interesting to watch. I, I don't know what the, the team's going to look like, but I have a feeling it'll be very, very fun to watch and produce a lot of offense. And and Cole Caulfield, you mentioned he's such an exciting player, and obviously he's an RFA this summer. And um, what do you think about that situation? How likely do you think it is that he's signed long term with the Canadians, and maybe what kind of contract is he looking for? I would assume that it's almost a done deal that he'll be signing for eight years. Okay. I don't see this as an organization to play around with, with that kind of thing. They know what he is, you know, uh, it's been very obvious since he took his first shift in the NHL, what kind of player he is. I would assume what the sticking point is at this juncture is the Canadians don't want him to be paid more than Nick Suzuki. And because of the goal scoring that Cole Caulfield has accomplished so far in the NHL at such a young age, like he has a lot of leverage to be paid more than Nick Suzuki. Uh, Suzuki has historically kind of struggled to produce offense at even strength without Cole Caulfield. So there's an argument to be made that offensively, everything on this team goes through Cole Caulfield's stick at the moment, and that gives him some good bargaining power. But if you listen to what Cole has said about the subject, he's just not in a rush. Uh, it doesn't really matter for him or the organization how long it takes. They'll figure it out. So... I, I don't expect any big hiccups there. I, I think it'll end up being eight years between seven and $8 million a year. And within one or two years, people will be talking about how much of a bargain contract that is. I, I want to ask a little bit about what else that Montreal Canadiens might do this summer, obviously. Um, and, and maybe just what you've thought about the new management core of, of Jeff Gordon and Kent Hughes and, and the job they've done as um or uh, as uh, the heads of uh, the Montreal Canadiens. Yeah, they appear to be really smart. You know, like we're only a little over a year in, so mistakes can be made. Eventually they'll probably bungle something, but so far their additions have all been pretty big winners. Uh, all the trades have been good to great value. Uh, I think Kent Hughes seems to have a nose for who will fit uh, on the team, which is a huge thing. And, you can see the the like outline of what they're building or what they're trying to build towards. And that seems good. Uh, they, they seem to be focused on the right things. I know that uh, people were making a big 
deal out of Kent Hughes saying that uh, character matters for drafting because they're looking back at Mark Bergevin and Mark Bergevin always talking about like character being the most important yeah. attribute. But yeah. before character, Hughes mentioned hockey sense. That was his number one, not character. And as Hughes seems to be a better judge of character than Bergevin was, I mean, it's not a hard, like, not, yeah, not a hard yeah. uh, barrier to clear, but I think the focus on character seems to be more about team fit uh, in terms of like when NHL teams say it and every NHL team does say it like it, that's the big thing. Uh, the, a lot of the paranoia right now is if they're going to draft for size. Uh, I don't think that that is a huge deal. I think that people are paranoid about uh, Uri Slavkovsky being taken last year based on size alone. But the difference is that Uri Slavkovsky in terms of talent level and projectability, even if you weren't a huge fan of him, his projectable like end game is not much different than Shane Wright or Logan Cooley. There's not a huge gap there. So they went with size in that scenario and personality in that scenario to like, it, it was all things being equal. Yes, they will go with size. Right. But if mm-hmm. it's Matt V. Mitchkov versus uh, Dvorsky, I don't think I could be wrong. I don't think they're going to trade down that far in talent level because of size, just based on everything else they've done so far in this new management group. But before I let you go, I want to just ask what, what do you think next year? You mentioned maybe being bottom 10 in the league compared to being the fifth worst team, but what would be a successful season for the Habs next year? Well, it really depends. Um, if Sam Montembeau repeats last season, uh, if he's actually that good, then they have to climb 10 to 15 standing points at least. Uh, they've got to get closer to the playoffs. Now, people won't, I don't think people will be upset if they get another really high draft pick, but I think that there's going to be less fan engagement if that happens while like if a bunch of players get injured again, like the last half of the season was not that great to watch. We'll say Uh, there's an excitement in the air in Montreal because we know that there are good players in the system. There are exciting players already on the team. Caulfield in the lineup makes a huge difference. I think the, the pop that he gets in the bell center is just incredible. And there's just this feeling of like being a goal down while you have Caulfield and Suzuki out there there's always a feeling that you could come back. There were many games early in the season where the Canadians kind of came out of nowhere and, and stormed back at the end of a game. So there's that as well, but more than anything, I think you just want to see progress from the young players. Uh, not every defenseman is going to have a better year next year, right? Mm-hmm. All those rookies. It's very unlikely that five rookies are all going to take a big step in their sophomore years. But if a couple of them take big steps and the rest don't take a big step back, that's big. And you want to see guys like Sean Farrell start to get some, some reps in the NHL, score some goals, Cole Caulfield to stay healthy. I mean, the whole team to stay healthy would be nice for once. It's been two dreadful years in that department, but more than anything, people just want to see entertaining hockey and the continual trend being upwards, right? Uh, if they're uninjured next year for the most part and finish around the same, there'll probably be some grunts, in the fan base of like, this isn't what we came to see. But I think the only way that that actually happens is if Montembeau takes a step back. And if the goaltending ends up being an issue next year, 
whatever. There, yeah. The last thing you need when you're getting towards competition is to find the goalie. I think that's the easiest job to find a competent goalie. It, you just need around league average. You don't need uh, carry price for the most part in the modern NHL if you've built a team correctly. So build the team itself. Don't go too far in search of a goalie this early and you'll probably be okay. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for, for taking the time and coming on. I just want to give you the floor. What are you working on going forward? Anything at SDPN that people should kind of be excited for or anything you want to plug uh, for uh, SDPN? Yeah, I mean, we're, we've are got Game Over Toronto and Game Over Edmonton still alive, although by the time this comes out, Toronto might be yeah. dead in the water. <laughs> Who knows if they get swept by Florida, which is hilarious, but also yeah. kind of sad. Yeah. Uh, We've got the same seven game over shows coming back next season. Uh, we're not going to expand at the beginning of the next season. We're going to put some feelers out there, but we want to focus on the markets that we have and building them up before we uh, expand out further. We don't want to go too far and end up having to contract because the last thing anybody ever wants to do is, is fire someone. And we want to be in a situation where we're not like legacy media, where we extend our branches too far and then the leaves are all start coming off. So we want to make sure that the the shows that we have now are stable and making money and that's going to be our main focus. Uh, So come October, there will once again be seven game overs live. We'll probably do game over international next season. A lot more. We kind of took a step back this year with the whole hockey Canada scandals, but uh, it's fun to cover the international games, world juniors, that, that kind of stuff. So we'll probably bring that back next year as well. Well, oh, and if Edmonton and Toronto both uh, lose their second round series, we will have a game over cup final go live again during the final. So no matter who's in the Stanley Cup final, we'll be there. Well, I'm really excited to to watch you guys. I, I, I uh, definitely watch game over when I can. And um, hopefully uh, next year or hopefully Edmonton maybe makes the finals because that'd be kind of cool. I think Toronto is probably unlikely at this point. But uh, thank you so much, Andrew, for taking the time and coming on. My pleasure, man. Thanks again.